Good morning, Christ Prez. You know, this past Wednesday, we launched our Humility Deep Dive. And in these messages for uh, seven Sundays, beginning today and ending on Easter, we'll be exploring this theme of Christian humility together. Here's the overarching idea I'm going to be working with and trying to flesh out in these messages. The entire Christian life, from creation to new creation, is meant to lead us into humility. That's it. Simple. Our whole lives are meant to make us humble. This is what you were made for. Now, of course, it's not always easy to be humble. You know, there's a funny country song by Mac Davis, the chorus of which goes like this. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a hell of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. It plays on this intuition we have that the better we are, the harder humility gets. That humility and perfection are working at cross purposes. That we can learn humility more readily from our failings and shortcomings. And if that were the case, we might think that the best way to humble ourselves is to fail and falter as much as possible. But the Christian story teaches a somewhat different truth. The story tells us that we were made for humility, that we've fallen from the lowly glory of humility, and then in Christ, we're being restored into his humble image. Humility isn't opposed to perfection, not at all. The more Christ-like we become, the more humble we get. Perfection and humility go together. When you're perfect in every way, you're humble in every way. Well, anyway, all that to say, this is what we're going to be looking at on Sundays for the coming weeks, how our entire lives from creation to new creation are meant to lead us into humility. This morning, we're looking at the humility of creation. And in particular, let's look at what scripture teaches us about our status as creatures. You know, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that humility is having a proper estimate of oneself. What scripture teaches about creation, I think, can help us to have a proper estimate of ourselves. Let's get at this by looking at the lowliness of being a creature, the glory of being a creature, the problem, and the cure. Okay, so first, the lowliness of being a creature. How does creation lead us to have a proper estimate of ourselves in terms of lowliness? Well, for one thing, it reminds us that we aren't needed. God didn't create us to satisfy some need that God had. He didn't create us because he lacked something that we could provide. God created us simply out of the superabundance of his love and hospitality. Our existence is totally unnecessary. We're completely contingent. We depend entirely on God for our breath and our life. Which leads to a second point. We're very needy. You know, God didn't create us to be self-sufficient. He didn't make us for life on our own. Rather, here's how Andrew Murray puts it. Quote, God as the living, ever-present, ever-acting one who upholds all things by the word of his power and in whom all things exist meant that the relationship of his creatures to himself would be one of unceasing, absolute dependence, close quote. See, Christian theology has always seen God's creative work and his sustaining work as going together, belonging together. Creation isn't a one and done kind of thing. God continues to sustain us moment by moment by the word of his power. You can't give yourself life. You're radically dependent on God. 
Every moment that we have air in our lungs and blood pumping through our veins is pure gift. We depend entirely on the one who made us to give us life every moment of every day. This comes through in the way Genesis 2 talks about our creation. We read this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, it'd be a different story if God had made us out of himself, or even if God had made us out of moonbeams or starlight or gold or something a little more lofty. But no, God formed us from dirt. That's about as lowly as lowly gets. We're from dust, and to dust we shall return. And the only thing that makes us something other than dust is God's breath, God's spirit, this gracious gift of life that we have absolutely no control over. Well, the fact that we're from dust puts us in touch with another aspect of our lowliness. Dust is tiny, and so are we. Very tiny. I mean, in relation to the rest of the created universe, we're just unimaginably small. Think about this. You know, there are billions of people on planet Earth, and you're only one of these people. But that doesn't even scratch the surface when it comes to thinking about how relatively small you are. Our sun is one star of over 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and now it looks like there could be as many as two trillion galaxies in the universe. Our minds can't really comprehend numbers this big, but it means we're unimaginably tiny. I mean, in those terms, to say that we're insignificant is an understatement. The psalmist gets this. He writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? We're just a tiny part of the universe, and we're not even at the center of it. Here's another way that creation leads us toward humility. We are radically decentered. This was a hard lesson for the church to learn. It took time for the church to accept that the earth wasn't at the center of our solar system to say nothing of the center of the rest of the cosmos. Why wouldn't God put the earth at the center of the universe? Well, maybe God wants to lead us into humility. So we're not needed. We're very needy. We're from the dust. We're unimaginably tiny. And we're not the center. In all of these ways, creation helps us to have a proper estimate of our lowly selves. But there's more. There's also the glory of creatureliness. We've seen that we aren't needed, but realize the beauty uh, of what that means. God didn't create us because he needs us. He created us because he wants us. Yes, our existence is entirely contingent, but here we are. And I'm not talking about humanity in some general way. I'm talking about you. God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is upholding you right now by his powerful love. He wants you to exist. He wants you to have air in your lungs and blood pumping through your veins. Yes, you are from the dust, and you are also filled with God's breath, God's spirit. See, every breath is a gift. You might take a deep breath right now, breathe in the spirit, and breathe out gratitude. 
The psalmist wonders why God would be mindful of us given how small we are in relation to the moon and the stars, but don't miss the affirmation in that. God is mindful of you. God cares for you. You know, what does it mean to be mindful of something? It means to have your mind filled with that thing. God's mind is filled with you. As small as we are, as seemingly insignificant as we are, God is attentive to us. He pays attention to us. He knows us. And he doesn't only know us, he cares for us, which is a way of saying he loves us. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you trust it. That the God who spoke this unimaginably large and mysterious universe into existence is mindful of you and cares for you. He knit you together. He breathed his life into you. He knows you and he loves you. See, every one of us is the work of God's hand. In fact, of all that God has made, only of human beings is it said that we are made in God's image. Think about that. We're made in God's image. We're meant to reflect God. It's like God's desire is that considering one another would lead us to consider God himself. His desire is that by looking at each other, we would see something of the glory and honor of God. More than staring at the night sky or staring, um, you know, staring at the moon and the stars, staring at another human being should lead us to contemplate the majesty of God. And when others look at us, they ought to be able to say, ah, so that's, that's what God is like. Well, that's part of what it means to be made in God's image, that every time we see another human being, we're seeing something of God. So I wonder who you're with right now, and you might just look at them. You're surrounded by glory and honor. You're sitting next to a human being whom God has crowned with glory and honor. You're sitting next to someone who matters, who is significant. If part of humility means having a proper estimate of yourself, are we starting to get it? See, we're lowly and we're glorious. I mean, think, think of how just this past week has illustrated this. Think of how lowly we are. I mean, um, ice can cause real trouble for us. Frozen water can, can really uh, wreck, wreck our lives. And at the same time, uh, we can put a rover on Mars. We're lowly and we're glorious. We aren't needed, but we're wanted. We're very needy, but we're loved by one who desires to satisfy us. We're so tiny, but God is mindful of us. We're not at the center, but we're treasured. You see, the humility of creation is lowly and glorious. There's a problem, and it's a problem that threatens to undo everything. See, we're created, but we're also fallen. From early on in the Christian story, we see that humanity isn't content to live in their lowly, glorious humility. They don't want to live in dependence on God's grace they want to be something other than spirit-filled dirt. They want to make themselves the center. The Christian tradition has always located this sin of pride as the basic sin that leads to every other sin. C.S. Lewis says it's the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride puts us at the center of the universe instead of God. It, it's a deep desire, uh, perhaps not just to be like God, but to actually be God and to move out on our own apart from him. 
And so Adam and Eve reject God's grace and they go out on their own. And that same way of pride leads humanity later to build the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. You see, pride wants that kind of recognition. Pride wants to be crowned with glory and honor, but on our own terms. It wants greatness that is earned, not received as a gift. C.S. Lewis defines the mark of hell as ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And I think that's also a pretty good definition of pride. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is essentially self-absorbed and self-focused. Pride makes me the center of the of the story. And because pride is essentially this kind of relentless focus on the self, uh, it can take different forms. I mean, there is a superiority kind of pride. This is the kind of pride that usually comes to mind when we think of pride. We tend to associate pride with feelings of superiority. We associate pride with people who are always looking down their noses at others, with, with people who are too in love with themselves. But there's also an inferiority kind of pride. You know, people who are really down on themselves all the time can be just as self-absorbed and self-focused as people who think they're really great. Pride is more about the fact of the self-absorption and focus than it is about the particular conclusions we draw about ourselves. But either way, you see, um, pride isn't content with the lowly glory of humility. Well, what's the cure to this sickness? What can lead us into true humility. It's tempting to say that the main way we're going to overcome pride and get humble is with religion. But remember that the most religious people in Jesus' day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Jesus pointed out that they were more focused on themselves and their own righteousness than on God and the needs of others. And and that is often the problem with religion. Uh, It gives you this standard and it asks you to meet the standard And to the extent that you meet it, you'll feel good about yourself. And to the extent that you don't, you'll feel bad about yourself. But in either case, where will your focus be? Just on yourself. And religion can't really create humility because it can't shift our focus away from us. William Temple famously said, quote, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself at all, close quote. See, true humility is freedom from navel-gazing. It's freedom from self-absorption. It means really being able to listen to others, really being able to empathize with others, really being able to celebrate and serve and love others. Religion tends to focus all our attention on ourselves, on our own obedience or lack thereof. And so pursuing religion in some ways is like pouring gas on the fire of pride. It's not a cure. But there is a cure. I think John Stott puts his finger on it when he writes this. Quote, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. 
See, their family is the cure for our pride, the humility of God. The humble God becomes small, so small, and takes our pride upon himself and takes it to the cross and he takes it away. Scripture tells us as as far away as the east is from the west. Do you know how to rest in that? How to trust it? How to get your eyes off yourself, off both your faith and your failures, and, and just to see and savor the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ for you? Begin with that. Rest in that. Remember, he is the vine, you are the branches. We live and we move and we have our being in him. We live from him and we work from him. In the Christian life, remember, we don't rest from our work, we work from our rest. And there is work to do. You know, one of the things about pride and really about all sins is that they can become vices. A vice is a destructive habit that over time becomes part of our character, part of who we are. Vices aren't just things we do. Over time, they become deep character traits. They become moral qualities we possess. But there's another option, virtue. You know, Jesus Christ was the true human being. He shows us the life we were meant for. He shows us the life we're meant to live. He shows us a truly virtuous life. And so when we look at Jesus, we see true humility. We see the life we were made for. We see the humble vine who invites us to root ourselves in him. But we won't drift into Christ-like humility. As a community, we won't become humbler by sitting back and just wishing it to be so. The only way to grow into the humble likeness of Jesus is to intentionally, actively, empowered by the Spirit, practice humility. As scripture encourages encourages us again and again uh, to humble ourselves. Listen to these words from 2 Peter. This is from chapter 1. He writes, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Which is more or less what we've been talking about. I mean, that is the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Rest in it. It can't be undone. But Peter doesn't stop there. Listen. He he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Make every effort, Peter writes, to supplement your faith with virtue. He says, practice these qualities. See, because God is completely going to take care of our Christ-like humility, we have a calling and a responsibility to grow in it. It's not ultimately our work. It's God's work in us and for us and through us, but it involves our effort. Here's an illustration, maybe. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had that one morning of actual snow, not ice, real snow. It wasn't much, but it was enough to do a little bit of sledding. So our family went out to the hill where our whole neighborhood goes to sled, and we just went for it. Now, you know this, uh, when you go sledding, that the first run is always the worst. You never get very far. But each each time you try the run along the same Uh, path, the snow packs down a little more and you go a little faster and a little farther. And practicing humility is like this. It's like sledding. How so? Well, for one thing, snow is a gift and practicing humility is a gift. It's a grace. Uh, For another thing, going sledding is fun. Growing into the likeness of Jesus isn't meant to be a burden. Sledding is hard at first, but it gets easier the more we do it. Forming new habits of humility might feel really hard at first, but eventually, by God's grace, humility will become second nature. Here's another way that they're similar. Sledding is more fun and easier when you do it together. Um, for the next six weeks, think of church as humility school. We need each other for this. Here's one more way they're similar. When you go sledding, falling isn't the end of the world. You can actually learn a lot by falling. And I think that'll be true for us as we practice humility. We don't need to beat ourselves up or or fret when we fail. Uh, There's an opportunity to learn and to get up and to try it again. How can you practice humility this week, family? All kinds of ways. There are all kinds of ways. Let me just suggest one practice for you to try and uh, and, and to try this maybe every day this week. Get outside. Spend some time looking at a sunset or at the night sky, the moon. Maybe even just find a really big tree and contemplate that tree and remember that you're a creature. You're a tiny, unnecessary, needy, absolutely beloved image of God bearing peace of this mysterious world God has made. Embrace the lowly glory of being a creature. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.